This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Christopher Willard. Chris is a licensed psychologist in private practice, focusing on mindfulness, anxiety, and learning issues. In addition, he trains teachers, therapists, and medical professionals in mindfulness practice through the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy, as well as lecturing at Lesley University and Harvard Medical School. With Sounds True, Chris Willard is the author of a new book and an audio series called Growing Up Mindful, Essential Practices to Help Children, Teens, and Families Find Balance, Calm, and Resilience. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Chris and I talked about the inevitable pain and struggles of being a kid and how mindfulness practice can help transform pain and suffering into compassion. We talked about introducing kids to mindfulness at different ages and stages of development and how to grow up mindfully with technology and social media and how challenging it can be for parents to know where to set the limits. Finally, we talked about mindfulness as a public health intervention and Chris's vision of the future of mindfulness in schools. Here's my conversation with Dr. Christopher Willard. To begin, Chris, how did teaching mindfulness to children and working with teens and families become your focus? It was a bit of a kind of unexpected path, to be perfectly honest. I I had been a teacher for a couple of years after undergrad and felt very unsuccessful at that. Um, and then when I went back to graduate school, I kind of stumbled into working with kids. And I'd, I'd had a mindfulness practice for about 10 years at that point and was trying to think, you know, is there a way to start bringing this into these kids' lives? Um, kind of to build resilience and give them just some skills. And also some of it had come from my own experience. I hadn't ever formally learned mindfulness as a kid, um, but I have memories of, you know, just looking up at the starry sky or watching clouds in the sky or, you know, that, that kind of thing, just listening to the, the sounds of the waves um, in the ocean. And so had had kind of experienced mindfulness as a kid, but without the word mindfulness. Um, and then I had kind of had some ups and downs as I got to be an older teenager and college student. And that's when I really first did discover mindfulness kind of by the name mindfulness when I was on a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh and found it very transformative. Um, and at that point I was thinking, man, I wish I'd, I'd kind of had some of these sort of more formal practices when I'd been a little bit younger. My path might have been a little bit more clear um, or there wouldn't have been quite, quite so much struggle in a couple of those years along the way. 
Um, so part of it was kind of stumbling into working with kids um, and then also wanting to kind of give back um, and offer young people some of what, what I didn't quite have, um, just because I had seen pretty immediately how powerful the practices were. You know, interestingly, in your introduction to Growing Up Mindful, you write that one of the greatest gifts of mindfulness is that it transforms, and this is a quote, it transforms life's inevitable pain into wisdom and compassion. And I thought that was such a beautiful way to talk about mindfulness and its potential in our life. And also, that's not necessarily the way people talk about it all the time. That's an unusual twist. So can you talk a little bit about how you feel that mindfulness, and especially introducing mindfulness to kids, can help as a tool to work with pain and suffering? Well, to me, life... Life is stressful. <laughs> um, you know, other other folks might say life is suffering, and that that both of those are pretty inevitable. Pain in in life is inevitable. It doesn't mean that everyone goes through a trauma, but it you know, or, or what we think of as a huge trauma. But it does mean that young kids, you know, will will get their hearts broken, will skin their knees, will experience life challenges. And there are different ways that we can respond to stresses in life. We can kind of watch our hearts and our minds close to life and start to kind of shut ourselves down. We can respond with anger. We can respond with kind of giving up and depression. We can respond with avoidance. Or we can respond with something else. We can respond with showing up. We can respond with befriending life. So we can, and to me, I kind of think of that as we can respond with mindfulness. We can respond with compassion. Um, and in that way, when we, when we really do show up for life, when we're fully present for life, those painful experiences become just opportunities for growth, opportunities to develop more wisdom and also opportunities to develop more compassion for other beings as well as compassion for ourselves in that process. And that to me is kind of like mindfulness can be this kind of, and when I say mindfulness, I mean mindfulness, I mean compassion, I mean contemplative practices and kind of practices out of the wisdom traditions are this kind of crucible that can transform that into more wisdom, into more compassion um, in the world and in how we approach the world and how we approach others. So I'm thinking of situations that parents have to deal with no matter what, that their kids will present that are painful. So for example, mm -hmm. just take a, and I don't have kids, but this is just, you know, classic from even being an aunt and doing my babysitting mm -hmm. with, you know, mm -hmm. nephews and nieces, something in their body hurt. They, you know, twisted their ankle, you know, little fingers bleeding, you know, okay, here the, the kid comes crying. What can I do in that moment? This is just life's inevitable pain. Here it is. How can a well, parent be, you know, use mindfulness and help a child be mindful in that kind of moment? I mean, in that moment, we can, we, we can be fully present for that pain and share that pain with them. We can't take that pain away, but we can, we can kind of feel it with them, right? Compassion, kind of feeling, feeling the feeling together, right? We can sit down next to them breathe with them, talk them through it, ask them about their experience, ask them what happened, and then also offer, <laughs> offer a hug, offer a Band-Aid, offer you know, whatever, whatever it is that, that they might need in that moment. But that, that only comes when we're able to be present, when, we're, when, when we as the adults are able to be 
mindful in that moment. Um, and it can also, you know, potentially it can mean also, here's how to breathe through this pain, whether it's this physical pain or discomfort or whether it's emotional pain, right? And that's sort of like John Kabat-Zinn's work of, you know, kind of pioneering the, the body scan in terms of, you know, being a kind of a clinical intervention of like, can you start to breathe through this pain? Can you start to learn from this physical pain? Also, can you ultimately start to see that this arises and it also passes, right? And you can come out the other side of that stronger mm-hmm. in a different way, stronger and more insightful. Mm-hmm. It seems that in talking about introducing mindfulness to kids and teenagers, that there's these different developmentally appropriate ways that you would introduce various forms of conscious breathing. And I wonder if you can talk about that, whether it's conscious breathing or other mindfulness practices, the kind of age mm-hmm. differences and the progression and what kids become available for as they get older. Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I think, I think mindfulness, kind of pure mindfulness, open awareness is a tall order for us adults, right? To just be kind of unattachably focused on our on our thoughts or kind of our, our sensory experience of whatever is happening moment to moment. And so I think in some ways I think of the book as being kind of mindfulness training wheels to kind of get a practice started young. And I think practices like visualizations, for example, kids are one thing they have a lot of is a lot of imagination, right? And so I, I described this study um, or this kind of anecdotal piece in the, in the book about Lev Vygotsky was a, a child development um, researcher from kind of mid-century Soviet Union. And he, he did this experiment where he was trying to get kids to stand still or to sit still. You know, this is what we're all adults are trying to do, whether you're a teacher or a parent or a meditation teacher. So he said, you know, be still. And he got out of stopwatch. And two minutes later, the kids are running around all over the place, right? Big surprise. So he thinks about this and he has the kids back and he says, okay, I want you to stand still, but this time I want you to imagine that you're the guard at a factory or a night guarding a castle. And so, you know, we can imagine what starts to happen. The kids are able to stand still for, you know, three or four times as long as they were when they were just asked to stand still. So tapping into the power of imagination, especially at a young age, is incredibly helpful, right? That's why play works. That's why games work to teach kids anything. And it's certainly why yoga practices or something like the mountain meditation or Thich Nhat Hanh's wonderful Imagery can be so helpful in teaching mindfulness to adults, but it also really works with kids. Um, so that's, I think, visualizations can be really powerful early on. Um, I think the body, kids are so much in their body. There's so much in their five senses, or hopefully they are. They're not <laughs> just interacting with screens. They're able to fully be in their five senses. And I, I think of the five senses also as being a really powerful way to kind of bring us right back into the present moment. Right, so that our, our thoughts may be wandering to the future, they may be stuck in the past, they may be halfway across town, but our five senses are, are really always grounded right in the present moment. If I feel my feet, that brings me right to the present moment. If I listen to sounds, that brings me right to the present moment. So also for, for kids as they start to get older, using the five senses is a way to really come right back into the present moment. Um, I also think an interesting question to just to ask kids, but even to ask ourselves as adults in terms of, am I being mindful in this moment is just occasionally ask ourselves, what am I doing and how do I know I'm doing it? And just checking in with my five senses, right? How do I know I'm speaking? Well, I can 
feel the vibrations in my in my throat. I can hear my voice. I can, you know, these other, you know, kind of checking in with our five senses. So these are very concrete ways to start to teach the elements of mindfulness that then kids can start to build as they get older, a longer practice on top of a more nuanced practice on top of a compassion practice on top of um, different kinds of practices that start with these kind of basic building blocks of mindfulness. So like we don't start with calculus, right? When we're teaching kids math, we start with one plus one. We can kind of start with some of these practices and then start to, you know, that are, that are more concrete with the senses or that are movement-based or maybe that are kind of built into games that they're already playing or built into song or art projects or things that they love to do. Um, and then it can start to become more of a formal practice over time. But it doesn't start as this kind of, oh, it's this weird breathing thing I'm doing or something like that. I'm curious if, if you would say like between the ages of, you know, two and five or something like that, where do we start? And at what age does it then shift into a different type of focus? And then, you know, there's something particular that you would emphasize with teenagers? That is it, can you break it down for me in that way and actually tell me what age groups you would experience the shift from this age group to that age group? Yeah, at a young age, I would start with, with physical stuff, movements, um, mindful walking or, or arm motions as, as kids are breathing um, or other kinds of movements as they're breathing, walking, um, other kinds of practices like that. Um, as they get a little bit older into elementary school, then, then kind of going a little bit more into some of the visualization-based practices. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, you know, you know I'm thinking of something like a, you know, sort of a lake meditation or a mountain meditation or something like that. As they get older still, I think then, you know, we can start to kind of help them get more in touch with their with their senses. Um, and then as they become teenagers, I think then just some more of those, okay, just a, just a breath practice or just a kind of counting the breath practice, something like that. But that I think is going to be way too challenging for, you know, something like a three or four year old. They'll need mm-hmm. to see it. They'll need to feel it in their bodies in order to be able to start to, to become used to it. And, um, yeah, and start to build the, the structure on which they can build a more formal practice, I'd say. Yeah, that's very helpful. Now, you mentioned if, of course, we can get our children away from interacting with screens, and if we ourselves can, you know, put down our technological devices long enough to <laughs> right. swing our arms with our kids, that kind of thing. So talk to me right. a little bit about your view of interacting with technology in terms of growing up mindful. What are... Dr. Christopher Willard's recommendations for screen limitations. Well, I mean, we know that we, I was just talking about this with a friend at a conference who is a, he's a kind of an expert in executive function and ADHD. And one of the things we know about screens and screen interaction at a young age is that it really does hinder executive function development, attention, empathy, all kinds of things. So I'm very much in favor of, keeping our kids away from screens as as much as possible for as long as possible. Now, what's really hard about that is that uh, as a therapist, I see so many kids have so much of their social lives actually are, are online, right? They're playing games together online when they're younger. They're kind of, you know, chatting and sending messages as they get older. And so 
to kind of deny them that technology is in fact, in the end, kind of denying them some of their social outlet that they really need. Um, so I think talking to kids about sort of that, that technology, you know, technology is neither good or bad. It's just kind of what we do with it. Um, I was actually talking to someone today who said, you know, we can use technology to be the anchor of our awareness as well. You know, we use a, we use a candle, but it's like by looking at the candle, we focus on it. If we put our hand in the candle, then that's not a very good object of meditation, right? It's kind of how we use technology. So I think for one thing, we want to first think about how do we set limits around technology. And that really does start with us as adults. All of this really starts with us as adults, whether it's modeling mindfulness or modeling kind of more mindful use of technology, um, and then can start to trickle down to kids. Um, but putting our phone away when, we're, when we are not on it, um, putting it away at the dinner table, you know, leaving it in our bag when we're just kind of around the house or, or putting it in a place in the house where it's not in sight, because when it, it's out of sight, it is kind of out of mind, which is helpful. I just read a great book uh, called Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle a couple weeks ago, and there's all kinds of research in there. But one of the facts that she cited was that when there's a phone on the table or a phone in sight, it actually cuts down on the amount of conversation that we're, we're having with each other. So just by having the phone out of sight or having the technology out of sight, we're actually connecting more with each other live and, and in person and um, all of that. And then as far as kind of, I think there are also ways to bring a little bit more mindfulness to technology. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm aware of, you know, I, I certainly love my technology as much as everyone. And I, you know, get out my phone and, you know, will occasionally just find myself mindlessly refreshing Facebook or Twitter or something like that. But I started kind of thinking about how can I use this a little bit more mindfully. And it's interesting to just open up your phone for a moment and go to, you know, whatever your favorite social media kind of app is or something like that and just, just you know, take a deep breath, look at that first status update that you see from a friend or an old colleague or something like that. Notice what your emotional reaction is. Notice what happens to your breath. Notice what happens to your body, right? Then just be aware of that and then just look at the next one and the next one. And just do that with like two or three, maybe a couple more. Do that for a minute or two. And it's amazing because, because so much of social media, we're having this kind of constant barrage of emotional content coming at us all the time. And we're not wired to process that, whether it's, you know, reading news sites that are kind of barraging us with information or whether it's, um, social media, and so just slowing down a little bit with how we use our technology, um, and then kind of you know going back into into how we use it. But it can be interesting to watch, just like or even just people probably know the kind of mindfulness practice of naming your emotions as they arise. Just to like scroll through your Facebook feed and just name the emotion that arises with each friend's status update. You know, it's usually like jealousy, jealousy, <laughs> jealousy, or something like that. But it can be it can be really interesting to just notice, oh, that's what I'm experiencing when I go online and I and I go through Facebook is 50 experiences of jealousy and you know 20 experiences of being really happy for someone and 10 experiences of sadness and it's and but we're not really processing that when we're doing it so fast. So occasionally mm -hmm. just slowing down with our technology can be a kind of interesting practice. Now I, I want to circle back to the first way you answered this question in terms of how much exposure to technology should we let our kids have? You said, you know, keep mm -hmm. them away from technology as much as possible and as long as possible. 
Okay, but now your kid is saying, you know, oh my God, I want to play the blah blah game, and this is what I uh, this is you know this is the number one thing that's turning mm-hmm. them on. You know, I don't want to swing my arms and count to ten, and you know, are you kidding me? Please give me my iPad. <laughs> so, what? Do, how does the parent respond to this? So, I think I think it's doing it's doing both, and I think what's hard about technology, or what's hard about kind of a lot of the the work that I do as a as a therapist is trying to stay away from judgment of others, trying to stay away from judgment of ourselves. Um, and so whatever it is that the choices that we're making as parents or as educators or as whatever our job is with kids is just to kind of know why we're doing it. If I'm setting limits, do I am I aware that I'm setting limits? If I'm not setting limits, am I aware that I'm not setting limits? And so it, you know in the end, what it comes down to is the intention behind it, right? So as long as we know, okay, you know what, like it is time for, for him to learn how to play the game and how to manage it or something like that. Or, you know, she does, you know, deserve a little bit of, of screen time so she can relate to her friends or whatever it might be, but just being aware of why we're doing it. So again, it's, it's kind of thinking about mindfulness in that broader sense of just intentionality behind all of our actions and all of our choices as much as possible, right? And it's, you know, it's not like every moment we're going to be making the perfectly mindful decision about how we let our kids interact with technology, but trying to just bring a little bit more awareness into that process. Now, how would you coach a parent who wants to have limits with their kids around technology and has a kid who's belligerent about it and quite upset? So in that moment, I think, I mean, in, we, what we want to do is avoid the moment where things completely fall apart. But I think talking with your kids before you kind of give them technology about, you know, or give them their own iPad or give them their own iPhone or something about what the limits are going to be and about what the responsibilities are, the kind of rights and responsibilities, that, you know, of, of having technology um, for themselves, that they understand that. And then kind of making a, making a contract, whether that's formal or informal, and then hopefully you can get to the point where you stave off that total meltdown in the face of the technology. Um, but we also know that technology is, is designed to be very addictive, right? It's designed so that we stay on it as long as possible and it's hard to get off of. We adults know that. And for developing minds, um, when their prefrontal cortex isn't as fully developed, it's incredibly hard for them to understand that for one thing, but also to be able to kind of get themselves off of the technology when it is built and designed to be that addictive. Um, And that is where I think just in general in our lives when we adults and we as families can figure out times that are sort of the screen times or times that we're kind of taking a Sabbath or taking a a bit of a break from technology. Um, So I know different parents have different expectations that they set up around no phones overnight, which I think is a really important one, um, or no phones or, or screens kind of an hour before bed or an hour after waking up, or, um, you know, no fo- some people have a, no phones around town, but in the highway, you can kind of get out, you know, get out your phone and just, you know, do what you want with it. Um, so I think just having clear limits and naming those limits and being consistent is what's most important. Mm-hmm. And kids are also going to, I mean, they're going to tantrum about anything, <laughs> right? You know, whether it's about candy or what in the checkout aisle or whether it's about um, wanting the screen time in that very moment. 
Now, one of the interesting things, Chris, about your book, Growing Up Mindful, is that you include more than 70 different practice suggestions that parents and educators <laughs> can use with kids. I mean, it's really chock full of practices. And you say something, you say many important things in terms of which practice to do with your kids at what point in time, but you say that you can tailor the practices that you introduce to your kids according to their interests. And I thought mm -hmm. it would be good to talk about that and you could give some examples for our listeners. So for example, let's say you have a kid who's extremely athletic and really interested in sports. Maybe you could suggest just one practice, and we'll do one for each one of these different interest areas, that you would suggest for a kid who's, you know, wild about athletics. Um, I think for athletics, for, I mean, and athletics is wonderful. Actually, I just had the opportunity to meet George Mumford last weekend, who's the kind of the mindfulness coach to a lot of the NBA. Um, but I, I think at, athletics are a real growing area of mindfulness in a way that, um, you know, especially bringing this to kids or kids that might be a little bit skeptical when they see how many kind of winning teams and, and that kind of thing are interested in these practices. Um, so I think body-based, so I think talking to kids about that, that these are what winning teams <laughs> use. And then I think body-based practices, for example, um, for those athletes or practices that help them kind of clear their head a little bit or see, you know, kind of read the field in some ways a little bit differently with, with kind of constantly fresh eyes or something like that. Um, and, a, and a fresh eyes practice is, I think, one that I, that I have in the book, which is just um, whether it's a playing field or whether you're in your room or whether it's, you know, when you're bored in the classroom or something like that, just taking a moment, checking in with yourself, looking around the sort of familiar surroundings that you find yourself in, Maybe you're, you know, you're in the studio where you've probably been hundreds of times, thousands of times, Tammy, and just like see if there's something new you can notice in this room that you've never noticed before. Yeah. And it's kind of amazing. And it, and it sort of brings a different level of awareness to our surroundings in terms of something that we've never noticed before. So some of those maybe more visual practices can be interesting um, for an athlete or maybe just kind of scanning around the room and kind of noticing the different colors that you see in the room, how many shades of red, or can you kind of notice the different shades of the rainbow? And again, this is using our senses to connect with the present moment and be aware of our surroundings. And so that's something that an, an athlete might use to kind of calm themselves down, get their head into the game and be more fully present. It's also something that a kid is maybe interested in the arts and kind of the visual arts and kind of, you know, just being aware of the surroundings might find, um, the helpful practice to kind of boost their creativity or just bring more awareness to um, the visual appearance of things around them. Now, if you were going to introduce one of these practices to a kid, I mean, it seems like you might need an on-ramp of some kind, like, would you like to play a game with me versus, mm -hmm. I've been reading this great book and I want to try a mindfulness practice with you. <laughs> I've been reading this great book, Growing Up Mindful, and... <laughs> right. What do you suggest for parents in terms of how they even begin with their kids such that their kids will be receptive? So to me, I think figuring out what the... I mean, as parents, hopefully you kind of know what your kids' interests already are. Um, and so 
often what I'll talk to kids about is that this can make you help you be better at and enjoy more what it is that you already love. This can help you with your soccer game and help you enjoy it more. This can help you with your friends and help you, you know, kind of in your social life and help you just kind of like enjoy being with your friends even more, you know, and talk to them about, you know, what's it like when you have, you know, do, do you know that friend that you have in your group who's really present, who really listens, who really gets you? What would it be like to be a little bit more like that person? Because that's just, that person is just more present and then and a little bit more compassionate and you can kind of cultivate that in yourself as well. Um, and, you know, or maybe it is around, you know, as a, as a mental health professional, you know, it often is around something like depression or like stress or like anxiety. And so then that is a kind of automatic buy-in when a kid wants to work on their depression or their anxiety or their stress or something like that. Mm-hmm. But when we get kids at a, at a young age where they're still interested in asking their parents for help um, or asking other people for help before the, the teenage years, which can be a little more challenging, of course, um, I think that can be helpful too. So, you know, one of the ways that, that comes up a lot is teaching kids some practices around public speaking. It's pretty much all of us adults and kids are afraid of public speaking. And so kids will say, I have to do a presentation in class. And I'll say, oh, you know, well, here's, you know, something I do is I take a deep breath in. I follow that kind of breath all the way down into the soles of my feet. And then I just really feel my feet grounded on the floor, really notice those sensations, the bottoms of my feet on the floor. I do a couple of breaths like that, and I just feel a little bit more confident, and then I'm kind of ready to go and do my public speaking. Um, so that's, you know, those are some ways. Yeah. Okay. And, and let's say that I have a kid who's really invested in their friendships, like you, you mentioned. Mm-hmm. This is really a focus for them. And their yeah. interest is, of course, I want to be a better friend. And what would you suggest as a practice that could be introduced? Well, this is also one of the ways, I mean, especially teenagers are so kind of socially oriented. Um, and I talk when I I'll often do a presentation to like a group of teenagers at a high school or something like that. And I'll introduce a practice, maybe like the Seven Eleven breath, where we breathe in for seven and breathe out for 11. And doing that a couple of times. And when I introduce it, I'll say, I'll talk about, you know, there's a good chance that you, by the time you get to college, will have experienced a panic attack. And there's an even better chance that actually one of your friends will experience a panic attack or just have a really hard time or just be emotionally overwhelmed. And this is a practice that you can use to help them and so if you practice it yourself right now with me, then you can kind of use it to help your friend when they're having a hard time. That's another way of kind of like, here's how to be a good friend, is to know a couple of these practices that can help your friend feel better. So maybe it's something like a breathing practice, or maybe it's something like, a, um, you know, I, I really like listening to sounds as one of my ways of kind of a, a mindfulness practice, just noticing sort of sounds at a distance and then sounds a little bit closer and then sounds kind of even closer still. And these are ways you can help your friend if they're having a hard time, if they're feeling emotionally overwhelmed, um, that kind of thing. So that's, that's often how I talk to, to kids about how this can be helpful for them socially or helpful for them if they want to be supportive of their friends who are, who are maybe struggling.
You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you even had some practices in the book, Growing Up Mindful, that addressed kids who are very interested in social media and spend a lot of time on social Mm -hmm. media platforms. So what might some of those practices be? Well, I think those practices of, you know, as I kind of described earlier, of just like, you know, you can open, you know, go ahead and open up your Twitter, open up your Instagram, and just name the first emotion that comes to mind as you look at each picture, as you read each status update. Um, do that for, for five status updates, do that for 10 status updates, that kind of thing. Um, it can also be helpful. One of the things that happens with social media, why it makes us feel worse about ourselves is that we see how much better everyone's life is because everyone's kind of showing their best self to the world. And so there's some interesting research where if you actually look at your own social media, um, feed rather than look at other people's, you start to feel better about yourself because you're kind of presenting the best of what's going on in your life. And so in a sense, it's kind of like making a gratitude list or or doing one of those kind of positivity practices of looking, counting your blessings and looking at what's going well in your life. So if you look at your own feed, it's like, oh, boy, I did have a good time at that party. Oh, I do have friends. Oh, I did this cool thing last year. Um, Rather just like, oh, everyone else is doing something cool. Everyone else looks great. Um, So that could be another way of looking at, at social media. Mm-hmm. And then it's also just a way of connecting, um, you know, whether it's kind of, you know, following mindfulness kind of related kind of topics on Instagram or Pinterest or Tumblr or Twitter or some of the other um, social media apps that, that kids are using. And there's a lot of, you know, those short practices on there, little memes and kind of inspirational quotes about mindfulness and that kind of thing on there as well for kids to get, get involved in. So again, it's like technology isn't good or bad. It's like, you know, do you choose to use the, you choose to feed the wolf that, uh, you know, kind of encourages you to be more mindful or do you choose to feed the wolf that encourages you to be more, more mindless, um, depending on what you look at online. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things you say right at the beginning of growing up mindful, and of course it makes a lot of sense is that, not even focusing on the practices that we introduce to our children, how we are, how we are as parents is the Mm -hmm. factor that makes the biggest difference in whether or not our kids will be growing up mindful or not. And so my question to you is, if you, if you were to say like, these are the most important ways a parent can demonstrate their mindfulness, inhabit, incarnate, and express their mindfulness. And these are the ways that if you don't, this is what's really going to cause the most difficulty for your kids in terms of (laughs) growing up mindful. How how would you respond to that, both the positive and the negative? I think the, the the most important things for parents, I think, are to I think to, to model mindfulness, I think it's, it's having, I mean, having a practice, <laughs> um, which kind of goes out the window when we become parents, as I found out about 18 months ago when I had my son. Um, and so kind of, you know, embodying, 
informal practice as well. Um, so not multitasking quite so often and not kind of looking at our phone every five minutes. Um, those kinds of things. I mean, however, you know, as, as we think and act, so our children kind of become is, is sort of what ends up happening. Um, and so embodying mindfulness in, in the way we eat, in the way we walk, but most importantly, I think, in the way we interact with our kids. Are we giving them our full attention? Are we making eye contact? Are we getting down to their level? Are we getting on the floor with them when they're young? Um, are we remembering what it was like to be a teenager as they become teenagers? Right? Are we able to kind of be open and compassionate to everything that, that is going on in their experience? And that's ultimately what's going to be most helpful, most important, um, is kind of kind of living in those ways. And then, of course, you know, the opposite ends up with the opposite effect, right? If we're busy, if we're stressed out, if we're modeling not taking, you know, not, not modeling good self-care, good self-compassion, um, then they're not going to be internalizing those things either, right? Um, you know, if we're modeling that we're on the phone all, all the time, if we're modeling that we're kind of half paying attention at dinner because we're too busy thinking about something else, or if we're modeling that we come straight home from work and don't give ourselves a chance to exhale and then snap at everybody else in the house, then our kids are going to start to do that. But if we model coming home, taking a few deep breaths, checking in with how we are and doing that maybe with them, you know, or maybe even not with them, then they'll kind of pick up on that, that that's a more mindful approach to life, a more mindful approach to the kind of hectic hecticness that, that life offers. Um, so to me, it's, I don't know if that's quite specifically enough answering your question, but um, I do think kind of as parents, we need to, or as, or as educators or as therapists or whoever it is that a role is with kids, the more we can embody the qualities of mindfulness and compassion. And that's the best way to ensure that, that a practice is going to grow. You know, ultimately the book has 70 something practices in it, but really the, the biggest lesson to me is if the parent, if the teacher, if the professional who's working with kids can embody mindfulness, that's going to be the best way to create uh, or to cultivate mindfulness in the kids. Best way to create stressed out kids, surround them with stressed out adults best way to create mindful and compassionate kids around them with mindful and compassionate adults. Now, you mentioned that you became a new parent 18 months or so ago. And I'm curious, what's mm -hmm. been the hardest aspect of embodying mindfulness for you in your parenting, <laughs> in your new parenting role? Um, I'd say the, the, I mean, certainly my, my formal practice is, has kind of gone out the window. <laughs> Um, so I think informal practice has become kind of where it is, or, or my formal practice has just gotten kind of smaller. My kind of my formal practice, I mean, kind of my time on the cushion. Um, and I think, what was your question? What's been what's, what's been, been the what's been challenging? the most challenging for you in terms of you know here you wrote a book, growing up mindful, but now you've actually mm -hmm. had a kid and you're doing it, <laughs> right. and I'm sure it's hard. And so I'm just curious, kind of how that's going for you, and what's really been the hardest part. I think it's what's what's hard is that that kids do require so much absolute presence, um, and I'm you know I'm busy with my job. I'm busy with writing. I you know travel a, a fair amount, and you know my wife is also busy with all three of those things too, and um, and so really remembering to be as as kind of single minded as possible, to be as present as possible, to leave 
work at the office um, when it's time to leave work at the office and it's time to be home. And that's, you know, an easy thing to do when, in some ways that's, you know, it's a hard thing to do when you're a therapist, but I had gotten kind of used to that. But then how do I not bring writing into, <laughs> into every moment of my day? Cause everything is kind of grist for the mill or kind of, you know, planning and logistics. And that's, that's, that's a real challenge um, to take that time out to be really fully present um, with my son and, and with my wife. And we, you know, my, my wife and I cook and eat dinner together. I'd say, you know, at least six out of seven nights. Um, I get a lot of time with my son. Um, I'm with him a lot of mornings. Um, I'm with him on, on weekends and I, it's, it's me and him most, most Fridays, which is just wonderful. So I also feel very privileged that I do get that time with him. And then it's kind of being intentional about, you know, we're going to the park do I need my phone with me? I, Oh, it's great. Cause I could take a picture, but I've got plenty of pictures of him. I can probably leave that at home. Right. Those kinds of things are hard though. It's a, it's a strong, it's a strong pull. And I'm sure in like five or 10 years, I'm going to, you know, hopefully if I, if you guys let me write more books with you, I'll write a, you know, an apology letter about all the things I got wrong, you know, from when I first wrote this book as a new parent that, that changed down the road. But that's also part of, you know, that's, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. You know, I'm curious because mindfulness now sounds like we're introducing this new idea into parenting, and here are 70 different practices. And yet, when I hear you talk about what's actually required, a type of single-minded, open-hearted focus, I think this is this is ancient. This is nothing new. I'm curious what, right. what you make of that. This is what I think is kind of like so kind of tragic about the fact that mindfulness has become so big. And, and I think mindfulness has become so big because it's a reaction to how multitasking we are, how busy we are. Um, and, and I heard someone say this, but uh, I mean, to me, mindfulness is, it's, it's inherent in all of us, right? It belongs to all of us. It's a natural state of being. And, you know, just, and yet now we need to kind of carve time out to be mindful, to, to be on our cushion or to do a practice or something like that, when in fact, it's one of the most natural things to us. But at the same time, we live in this modern world where we, you know, drive ourselves and, and park as close as we can to go to the gym and get our exercise or our kids take time out of school to go do recess, which, by the way, they barely have anymore anyway, um, but in the, in the same thing, we're kind of doing that with our with our mental health and our and our mental exercise of of mindfulness um, that we used to get naturally just by hiking or by not being quite so busy or by you know looking you know looking at the clouds in the sky or, or the stars in the in the nighttime or something like that. So it's it's sort of it's sort of tragic that we have to build mindfulness in in formal ways, but we can also just try to be more deliberate in our lives at the same time as we just bring more intentionality to what we do. Now, Chris, one of the things I want to make sure we talk about is that I know that one of your areas of expertise is teenagers and depression. And you mm -hmm. write in the book, Growing Up Mindful, that teenagers in our society are unusually stressed out. You quote yeah. a study of the, they're the most stressed out portion, actually, of our population in the West. So, so talk to me a little <laughs> bit about stress in teenagers and also what you've learned about working with teenagers, mindfulness and depression. Yeah. 
Um, this is one of those like like heartbreaking <clears throat> statistics I encountered a couple of years ago. Um, the American Psychological Association did a, a survey and found that teens are the most stressed out group in America. And of course, you know they they could have told us that. Um, and I, I maybe kind of had an idea of that, um, but it was really it was really profound and and I think pretty disturbing. And I and I think you know I've heard other kind of mental health experts talk about. Um, you know, the, the fact that our, our teenagers in, in America are, and, and part of the problem is that, you know, our, our stress response system is the same for everything, whether it's an emotional threat or an academic threat or a social threat or something like that, as it is if it's an actual danger. And so the, the, the negative effects end up of, of, of the stress our kids in kind of mostly sheltered America are under are actually kind of just as, as dangerous people are saying as kids that are growing up in war zones even and what we know about stress and in our usual stress response of fight or flight or kind of like freeze and forget it are that you know these these start to kind of rewire our systems rewire our brains if we're exposed to this kind of significant stress at a young age and so what happens is then that kids grow up and they end up depressed they end up anxious. They end up kind of aggressive or, you know, we see this sort of, you know, kind of concern about bullying. And the other thing we know about stress is that usually when we're stressed out in that kind of fight or flight mode, that shuts off our ability to be compassionate, right? And we kind of know this if we're driving in traffic and someone cuts us off and we're in a rush, then they're a total jerk. But if we're, you know, not in a rush, then, you know, it's okay, you know, go ahead and, and cut in front of me on the highway or something like that. Um, and so, but what that means is that kids are, are kind of rewiring their brains to be depressed or to be anxious um, because of this chronic stress we're under. The other thing that's happening is that we're not teaching kids how to manage their stress. So not only are they not getting it in social emotional learning class because they're, you know, that's getting cut, but they're also not just kind of like getting it out on the playground, getting it out in the you know, in the, in the walk to school um, because they're not walking to school as often. Or when they do have a break, they're on their phones, which ends up kind of making them more stressed out or something like that. So they're not getting, so they're more stressed out because they have more on their plate. Then they're also not getting the skills to kind of deal with the stress. And then at the same time, they're also, you know, that any time they do have is being taken away from them where they might naturally learn how to kind of manage their stress. And so to me, that is where mindfulness can kind of like, I, I really see mindfulness with kids as like a public health intervention. Mm-hmm. Like, this is like, if we can reach a, like a, a, a broad number of young people at a young age and teach them how to manage their stress and regulate their emotions and, and teach them how to focus, and we can do that through mindfulness, we know that from the research, I mean, that's going to be huge for the next generation. And teaching compassion and self-compassion at the same time, which is kind of built into into mindfulness as as one of the wonderful side effects of mindfulness. And so what that ends up doing down the road to stress-related issues, whether it's depression, whether it's anxiety, whether it's some of the violence that we're seeing um, and lack of compassion that we worry about, um, I think that's just such an incredible gift for the future. Um, and And then we also know that, you know, even if kids are already depressed or already anxious, that these practices can be really helpful for them at the same time to treat their anxiety, to treat their depression, to, to calm down their anger, to help them make better choices around 
you know, turning to cutting or self-harm or drugs or other kind of acting out issues that they might be having. When you talk about introducing mindfulness practices as a public health intervention, that, of course, makes me think about mindfulness in the classroom and how, Mm -hmm. you know, here you're introducing 70 different practices that are not faith-based in any way. They're simple movement, breathing, attention, et cetera, practices. So what's your view on how this might unfold in a positive way over the next decade or so, mindfulness in the classroom? I feel really optimistic um, for those people that are kind of following this more closely. This is, there's always been a concern about this becoming controversial um, in the last few months, this, you know, some things kind of have erupted in terms of, in terms of some more um, concerns about getting mindfulness more into schools. And of course, there are hundreds, thousands of, of, of teachers across the country, around the world, bringing mindfulness to kids in schools. And schools are, you know, if we want to reach kids, schools is the best place to do it. Um, and, I, and I do think there's, there's going to be some challenges, but I do think that the movement um, in terms of bringing mindfulness um, and contemplative practices into schools is is definitely going to win out in the end um, because the research... Can you share yeah. with me what the core challenge is and what's happened in the last few months? Just bring me up to speed. Um, there have been some... Um, I mean, I think with a lot of... With anything mindfulness, I think there's often a concern from people that don't know that much about the practices that people are teaching religion in schools. Yeah. Right. So then there's some, there's some lawsuits, there's some um, threats of lawsuits um, kind of happening in some different parts of the country. Um, But I think, I I think we know that mindfulness, you know, is, you know, can be completely secular and not related to any spiritual practice. um, Although it can also be a beautiful part of people's, anyone's spiritual practice really. Um, and so I think that's ultimately going to win out just the way, you know, reading can be religious or it can not be religious, but we certainly teach reading in school, right? No one would, would argue with that. And when people start to see the benefits of, oh, these kids are concentrating better, they're regulating their emotions better, they're being kinder to each other. Um, I think that's, that's going to be, you know, what, what's most clear. Um, but there may be, you know, it may be a bit of, the controversy for you know may may continue for a couple of years, but I think it ultimately will will settle down, and this will continue to only grow in the schools. And do you have a vision now? Let's say we fast forward several decades from now, what mindfulness in the classroom will will look like? Can you see it? It's a really beautiful. Um, it's a really beautiful thing to imagine, um, and. I mean, I, I just, I love the idea of, you know, my son who's 18 months old now kind of getting into nursery school and some of the nursery schools in the area, they're already doing some kind of movement practices. And, and as he gets older, that gets reinforced in some different ways where they, you know, some days they do, you know, a short breathing practice before something stressful happens or then it's integrated a little bit into athletics to help kids stay calm and performance and, and it's brought into music and um, the creative arts. And it's also um, just kind of, you know, then also brought into science class kind of as, as kids get older and start to understand their brains and understand their emotions. And um, there's time that's allowed for, for more formal practice as well as just like, 
two minutes here, five minutes there, but but kind of longer longer periods of time where kids are are able to and encouraged to practice, just as the way they're encouraged and even required to to exercise their bodies, they're, they'd be required to exercise their their minds in these ways. Um, and yeah, and I, I certainly hope my my son gets to see the the fruits of that in his lifetime. And, you know, again, because I know, you know, for myself when I was young and a little lost and, and confused for a few years there, it would have been so helpful to have had these these practices or or the seeds planted a little bit more firmly. And it's not like everyone will necessarily grow up and, you know, be sitting on a cushion, but that everyone who needs these practices as they get older, if something does happen, if they are struggling, they can go back and think, oh, we did that cool, like listening to sounds thing in second grade. And I remember really liking that. Or, wow, I really liked this sort of mindful walking thing we did in, in, in fifth grade. And, you know, maybe I'll just do that right now to kind of calm myself down or, or get through this difficult time that I'm, that I'm experiencing or, or not even because of anything, but just because I like it, <laughs> right? Not because of, you know, something bad happening. Um, and to me that, and, and for some kids, maybe they wouldn't, but that, but that everyone can, everyone can have at least some exposure to it, um, I think would be amazing. And I think it, I think it may well get there. Mm-hmm. It is a beautiful vision. Thank you. Thanks for unfolding that for us. One final question, Chris. I'm going to give our listeners a preview. You're working on a new book with Sounds True, Mm -hmm. I'm pleased to say, on raising resilience. Talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about how you see resilience and what you think some of the keys are to raising resilient kids. Yeah, um... And I think there's there's a lot of hand wringing in our culture about how not resilient so many of our kids are. Um, so the book is kind of a response to that, um, and it's also a response to. I went to my local meditation center right a couple months before my son was born. I said, "What am I going to do about my practice?" And my teacher said, "Ah, forget it. Just you know, focus on focus on the paramis, focus on your values, um, focus on kind of your life off the cushion." um and be be present and i and i did a little digging and i kind of learned about some really beautiful traditional virtues and so i don't want to say i'm writing a book about family values <laughs> but in a sense i'm kind of writing a book about family values 2.0 or spiritual values 2.0 um and the science behind kind of what what leads to resilience and it really is i mean there's amazing science about what what practicing and teaching generosity does in terms of making us happy what um you know how how can we cultivate um patience and and kind of diligence and hard work in our kids um and what that does for lifetime of success and and lifetime of happiness and and resilience and how can we help them kind of learn how to how to kind of roll with it and um, in terms of like, you know, can you teach a kid equanimity um, and can you practice that yourself? And so looking at, at these different kinds of values and virtues like that, um, and it's been, I've already found it just kind of a fascinating exploration, both of traditional wisdom and of recent kind of neuroscience and social science um, of, of how these kinds of things lead to, lead to resilience, teaching kids 
compassion and self-compassion um, rather than teaching them, you know, just self-esteem, um, teaching them, um, yeah, how to, how to care for others, how to, um, how to be generous, how to live simple lives of, you know, not, not just kind of wanting and consumption, but how to, how to be more appreciative. Um, and, and yeah, and, and so it's, it's been really fun. I'm, I'm about halfway, you'll be pleased to know, Tammy, I'm about halfway done. So uh-huh. <laughs> it's, it's on target. Yeah. You know, interestingly, I pulled out a sentence from the end of Growing Up Mindful, and here's the sentence. We know that the best predictor of resilience in a child's life is to have one adult who is there for them, who believes in them unconditionally. And this is at the end of the book in your conclusion. And I noticed when I read that sentence, one adult who is there for them, who believes in them unconditionally. I just felt so moved by that. And I thought, you know, I want to be that kind of adult for some of the children that I know in my life. A beautiful inspiration, I think, to people. Thank you. And I, I, I had this moment where I, I, I got absolute chills when I had this revelation. I was practicing metta and, and loving kindness practice and, and channeling a, a benefactor, which is something that one does in that contemplative tradition. And it occurred to me that it's not just about me having a benefactor. <laughs> it's about that maybe I'm someone's benefactor. And maybe there's a way I can be a good benefactor to someone. And that was a really profound and moving moment for me when I, when I thought about that. And then also kind of, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, what it is that kids need, they need, a, they need that benefactor. And that could be you, you know, it could be any one of us. And we forget that. Um, and so, you know, again, it kind of goes back to, to our own practice of mindfulness, our own practice of compassion, our own practice of self-compassion um, that allows us to be that, that benefactor, even though that might be kind of a frightening responsibility. Um, it's pretty amazing to, to consider. Mm. I've been talking with Chris Willard. He's the author of a new book called Growing Up Mindful, Essential Practices to Help Children, Teens, and Families find balance, calm, and resilience. And there's also a companion audio guide of practices, Growing Up Mindful. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on Insights at the Edge and for your good work and for all the people that I know are benefiting from you as a benefactor. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tammy. This has been this has been really fun. Working with Sounds True has been incredible. Speaking with you has been incredible after... Like I heard, first heard your voice on Jack Hornfield's Roots of Buddhist Psychology about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. I had some old audio tapes um, of that, that sounds true um, program. And so it's, it's, I'm just thrilled to be working with you and, and honored. And, um, and I hope this, this podcast and this book can, yeah, can be a benefit to many beings, big and small. So thank you. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.